Hi, everyone. This is David Sanction, and we're talking music with Dave and Shane. Oh, yeah. David Sanctuous, the album Eyes Wide Open, and of course you know David from the uh, Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band, and so many A-list performers, uh, I mean, uh, gosh, I mean, Jack Bruce and Peter Gabriel and on and on and on, so many more sting. Uh, David, you know, thank you for doing this, for talking with us. You know, I got to tell you, for me, as, as an African-American, you know, who loves music, I, I, the themes in this record, I mean, it's very socially conscious, it's so timely. And it also kind of makes me think back to those early days in, in Asbury Park, which were, I guess, before my time, fair to say. But um, did you feel sort of a connection when you're putting this record together? Did it drum up a lot of those early experiences for you? When I was putting this record together, one thing that really struck me was how, for all the gulf of time that everything has happened, I was talking about from, you know, I, I was born in 1953. So I was like, you know, the, the early days of civil rights movement and saw all that stuff. I remember the whole Rosa Park, everything, right? So what struck me is how much we're still dealing with all the same issues in a way. And that really kept coming back to me. I mean, I, there's a song in there, Urban Song, Urban Song Number Three. And I wrote the thing originally, what year did they nearly beat Rodney King to death? I'm telling you, what year was that? 91, was it 91? 90, I think right. one or two, yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that's the year that I started writing a song. Wow. I started it after that. And I remember, I remember actually, we were on a break from touring. I was touring with Stangman. And he actually called me at home and he said, are you okay? Because I can't believe, you know, what I'm seeing on television and how people are reacting to it. And I was really upset. You know, we talked about it for a while. And, and I said, you know, I'm, I'm good, I'm good. And then, you know, I sort of went about writing the song. My thing that I always do is when I'm not traveling, when I'm not touring or doing a session somewhere, I record everything. You know, I come home and I start a recording project. I start recording my own stuff, but I start recording with other people. So I had the basic thing of the song. And actually a couple years later, uh, I met uh, Michael Bland and Sonny Thompson from, uh, from Stings from the new Power Generation band. We were working on a project in France together for this French singer. And uh, we, we hit it off right away. And I said, hey, guys, when I come back home, uh, would you be into coming up to, to Woodstock and do some recording and working on some stuff? So they came up. And that's how it came from just a song I'd written to like Michael Bland is playing drums on it. I actually think the bass track on that is not Sonny. Sonny's going to be on the next album from the whole other thing we did there. Okay. But um, then it became a song. And then... I actually, it was part of a, 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 about maybe a four or five song demo I was trying to shop to get a, a record situation. And I got compliments on the song, but no, I didn't get any deal. So, but I let it sit and then I kept writing all that stuff. And then I knew I was gonna get this uh, out. So 2016, when the election of Donald J. Trump happened, I, I was, I won't say I'm depressed because depression is a very, it's a whole other serious thing. Unfortunately, I don't 
have a big issue with, but I was incredibly sad and, and just kind of incredulous and then really sad that like, really that that direction could be chosen that that many people in this country went for that. And then I just felt bad. I, I, I will say hit out, but I stayed in the studio for about three days. Didn't go out much, you know? Uh, and then I really made a decision to like, I'm gonna wrap this up and put all these songs in some kind of context. And um, when I started doing that, I revisited Urban Song Number Three. And then I actually rearranged it. I came up with the idea to have a collage of voices. The uh, College Kids Protest, that's from a school down in, uh, um, I don't know, it's Alabama or somewhere, somewhere, I won't say that. Uh, uh, um, and then the idea to use Dr. King, it was with the anniversary of that speech he gave in London. And I was listening to it on YouTube because they were playing it, playing it a lot. And I thought, you know, that voice combined with the kid, the voices of the youth and combined with some other things that I did, I rearranged it. Uh, I've re-sang it. I re-sang the lead part. Um, Resang the backing parts. I did a different organ solo, which was really fun, but that took me a minute. It was like, man, because I could not be satisfied until I finally really, I had a feeling like I wanted. And then I got that. And then the end, there's an end section where it goes, that's what I pray. Dun, dun, that's the way I pray. Uh, uh, that I came up with, not accidentally, but at the end of an editing session, on the rest of the song. So that's brand new. That's from like 2019. Okay. So if you were seeing this, the original song was written in 91. Wow. And then it went through a few changes. And then, and then uh, you know, I said 2016, I'm gonna finish it. All the other stuff was written and everything. But but look at look at what's happening. Look, look what that's about and look what still happens. It's almost like a, a you know, like a, I don't want to use the analogy, but it's kind of apt. It's like a virus of, of um, a protest against people of color. And Donald Trump really, you know, he just unleashed uh, the dogs on that one. You know, he gave people free license to be as uncivil as possible and, and let their, um, let their, their worst uh, impulses um, show. It's horrible, it's been really bad. David, uh, Shane here, how are you doing? I just, um, Amazing record. I just, uh, we're six days away from the one year anniversary of, of George Floyd's death. Yeah. Um, what what a, a year, uh, you know, 20, 2020 and into 2021. Do you feel like uh, there's still uh, an undercurrent of momentum uh, since last May? I feel... I feel hopeful about it. And while I speak very negatively about uh, Donald Trump and all the damage he's done, it's very clear that we've made real progress, real progress, but it's, it's so incremental. It's very dramatic. I mean, this last year, everything from 2019, 2020, and this year, it's very, very dramatic and very, um, very ongoing, but the progress we've made in a certain way can't be undone. That progress that we have made is not gonna be undone. But it's like that Stevie Wonder song was heaven is 10,000 light years away. It takes so long because we have so far to go. You know, there's so much wrong foundationally, conceptually with America. 
I mean, let's be honest. America got founded on the, one of the worst ideas possible, on the worst impulses of human nature. Kidnap, slavery, you know, uh, force, you know, removed from your land. It's so it got, and, and not to mention genocide of the Native Americans who were here before the, the so-called, you know, whatever they want to call themselves, the Europeans, the settlers, whatever name they want to stick on it, you know, there was a genocide created on Native Americans in this country, which has never really been, I mean, occasionally it gets spoken about and you'll see a documentary, some special about it, but it doesn't get addressed and, and it doesn't get addressed as history in our schools in the same way that what really happened to, to, to uh, Africans and people who were kidnapped here. That doesn't get addressed in the kind of detail that would arrest a person's attention and make you want to be sure that you don't behave like that or be a part of anything that would have that an outcome. And you've got to start with children. You've got to start when they're kids. You can't roll up on some 19-year-old in some fancy college and tell him that everything mommy and daddy said about these other races of people is nonsense, you know, because they're being taught hatred and racism at home while they're eating their Wheaties, right? So they got to get it from some, somewhere out in the world. And it should really be from, I believe, schools has, have a responsibility to just accurately teach history. Don't whitewash history. Just accurately teach it. You have to get, uh, my mother was a school teacher and we had a library, had a small library in our house. And she continued to, even after she was teaching, she continued to get her, her degrees and PhDs and everything. So we had college level books in our house. And I'm the youngest of three boys. So from the time, and my mother taught us all to read before we set a foot in kindergarten. All of us, she was amazing like that. And I had access to history books that were so contrary to the history books that I was reading in grammar school and high school, you know, that I, I just, this is, it's, an, it's insane. But it, it, they have to get reality from somewhere. They have to get enough of a dose of reality so that they can go home and maybe challenge mom and dad about what they said about Mexicans or, you know, blacks or, or Jews or whoever, you know? But it's a, it's a, huge, it's a huge job. It's a huge job. We got a lot to do. How important is it for us to not miss this moment? I mean, the, the murder of George Floyd, so many others, you know, brought forth this reckoning that I think we haven't seen in so long. But to me, it seems like this is not a moment that we can miss. And I don't think we will. I think this younger generation, I don't know if you see this, but this younger generation, it's, it's heartwarming to see how active they are. You know, the, yeah. the, peace, the overwhelming number of protests have been peaceful. Do you feel like a sense of like, maybe this could be different? And let's hope- I agree with you. Yeah, I mean, first of all, we, it, this is historic. The moment that we're in socially from where everything is happening. You know? And there's been so many before George Floyd, but the, the details of the actual event of George Floyd were so like, come on. I mean, you, don't, you would see that in a movie, in a Hollywood movie that someone you know, was trying to make a point about. That was straight up real life, you know? And so, you know, and because it was so bold that, that it got the result it got. But I agree with you about the energy of, this, of, the, of the young generation. I totally do. And it's amazing to see that, they're fierce. And I think this type of thing, I think life itself always raises up a generation or the people within a generation to do what's necessary. I think whether it's socially, uh, artistically even, you know, I think life, there's something about life itself that will find 
or create the individuals who are going to be on the front lines of whatever and 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 stand there and, and put their bodies on the line. It's amazing to see the intensity of of, the, of of these protests and what you have to be ready to like get your ass kicked going outside to protest something. That's 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 deep. That's not everybody's thing. You know, everybody can't do that. But for the ones who can do that, you have have the utmost. Um, the admiration and, and, and respect for them and and on the energy of that it, things things will, will will get done uh, it's just the um, uh, again it's, it's the degree it's just so much but there you go it's like you know yeah it's like we're here we got it we're here until we're not and then we have to yeah. deal with everything that that uh, everything that arises you know uh, david what was uh when you were starting out, what was uh, Belmar, New Jersey? What was New Jersey like as far as as uh, environment for you know a young African American man growing up? Well, Belmar, New Jersey, was like it was almost like a, could almost have a TV show about the place. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I grew up in a very <laughs> interracial um, neighborhood it was mixed it wasn't only black people there were uh wasn't only christians uh there were jewish people we lived uh we lived across the street from the rabbi of the town the synagogue was around the corner from our house uh we lived next to uh, a jewish family and went to school with their kids uh there was another uh, black family and they were school teachers both of them uh there was an italian gentleman on the corner who was a carpenter so it was like, it, it was, I won't say idyllic, but it was like almost in a way, there were all these people and everybody was getting along just fine. There was not any aggro, there was no gang wars on East Street, you know? Now where we came from in Asbury Park, we lived on the wrong side of the tracks, quotation mark, okay? Yeah, uh, yeah you had to be very careful where you were, um, what, what you said, what you did. Uh, it was just a more dangerous environment. And my, my parents didn't want that for us. So they worked very hard to uh, get us out of that area and out of that town. And uh, it was like, we, we moved from, uh, we had half of a two family house on the corner of uh, 928 Madison Avenue, Asbury Park, New Jersey. I still remember that. It was eight miles away. And we moved into our own house. It was like two floors, like one, two, three bedrooms, uh, a big front yard a two car garage with a driveway, a big backyard with pine trees in the back. And I mean, it was just like, someone picked you up on one day and dropped you into a whole other hipper environment. And, and it was just a peaceful neighborhood, this peaceful neighborhood. I always think that it's one of the things and I can never speak for Bruce, but people ask me a lot, like, why did he call it the E Street Band, you know? I always wondered and, that. <laughs> yeah, well, I think they had a, he had occasion to, to be there and see the neighborhood sometimes because they used to pick me up. I was too young to drive back then. I was like, you know, 15, 16 or something. And uh, so they had to pick me up and, and drop me off at East Street. And our mother very kindly, back in those days, we didn't have a place to rehearse. We had no, you know, Bruce didn't have any permanent space where we could rehearse as a band. So we were at the mercy of whoever would let us use their what, their house, their garage, their basement, you know? So a couple of times, uh, my mom let us rehearse there, you know? Uh, 
Not as many times as some fans might think. It's been puffed up into a bit of a legend. We didn't rehearse there constantly, but I mean, I can think of maybe like two or three times that she let us rehearse there. And again, I think what he saw, just even peripherally, just in that light way of the neighborhood, it was like an example of, um, of people getting along together. And also we were like one of the only interracial bands at the time on the Jersey Shore. That was not like a, a, a so much of a done thing. You had bands that played on the West Side, but they were all, almost exclusively all black musicians. And Ernest Carter and I um, were the only musicians who played on both sides of the track. Also Clarence Clemens actually. The three of us could work on both sides of the track, but, um, and I, I just think, again, without speaking for him, uh, I think it appealed to him. I think the, the uh, just the nature of the place and how it was like, everybody's getting along here and it's, it's, it's peaceful, it's interracial and there's an energy here and, you know, I don't know, what something was, like that. I mean, what was Bruce like in those early days and what was it like to be able to have that, it seems like at least music that could bring people together like that. It's mm. such a powerful force. Oh, Bruce in those early days was, um, what I remember about the way he was mostly is how focused he was on, on the music. And he was either always writing something or playing something or, you know, trying to figure out where can we play, when can we play again. Super focused on the music, you know, and also, you know, he was, I think he's six years older than me, something like that. So. But, you know, he was very much uh, um, a young man from the, from the shore. He enjoyed, uh, you know, that place actually, it was not a bad place to grow up the Jersey Shore in those days. You could have yeah. yourself a good time. You really could. And again, it didn't have the kind of danger of, of the, um, New York City or, or um, you know, Watts or something like that, you know. So... Um, it was cool, but I just remember, man, he wanted to play as much as possible, as much as possible, which was, and I was very much the same way, you know, like where, anywhere, what time, wake me up from sound sleep, you know, and play something. Yeah. When you met, when you met Bruce, he, he was kind of already a big deal, wasn't he? He was. Bruce was always very famous locally, way before, way before uh, uh, he did his uh, first solo album. He was locally like the guy. He had a band called Steel Mill. Okay. And it was interesting to me because I was listening to not only music like uh, what was going on, like what he was into, like Dylan and rock and everything, but I was also into, into jazz and, and playing in, in odd time meters and stuff. And I believe they had a song, Steel Mill had some song that was in 5-4. And they were like, but it was, it was metal music. It was like really, uh, it wasn't anything. It wasn't like a, a Van Morrison-y, Dylan-y kind of, you know, East Street-y even kind of vibe. It was, he was really playing some serious guitar. And it was, and Steve Van Zandt was playing bass. Uh, Vinny Lopez on drums and Danny Federici was playing organ. It was called Steel Mill. And uh, that was, it was a whole other sound, but he was, they were very popular locally. They could fill places that national acts would come and play. I remember one time, uh, what did they play? Was that the, place called the Sunshine Inn. I might have my dates wrong. And there was another place uh, up in Seabright. But like national acts who had records out would come and play these places in the film and Bruce could show up. And that, that band at that time would fill places. Yeah. 
And then he decided to uh, to end it one night, the night that we, the first night that we actually physically met, I knew who he was and I'd seen him play. But the night that we uh, met, uh, we ended up in this, uh, where he was, he and Gary Talent were creating this uh, jam session for the, the second slot at Upstage, which was from was nine to 12, from one in the morning to five in the morning. So I got invited to be part of that jam session and that's how we met. And then as we the, they used to kick you out of the place at, you know, five in the morning. So the sun's coming up, we're all talking about, you know, who can give who a ride home and where are we gonna, where's the nearest diner, you know? And uh, he's, we're walking side by side and he's telling me that um, he's getting ready to end that band uh, and he's gonna do something, something new, you know? And would I be interested in, uh, in playing keyboards in it? To which I said, yes, immediately. And the rest is, is what it is. Yeah. Was it, um, when, when you joined that uh, E Street at the time, I mean, did you, did you feel sort of the pressure that Bruce was feeling? Um, I guess that was a little bit before Born to Run, right? Because I know that the pressure came oh, yeah. in, um, from the label and the industry, it seemed like on Born to Run, but like, when did you feel kind of the intensity of it? And then, and during the Born to Run sessions, did you feel like, what was it like kind of seeing Bruce, you know, really trying to make this thing happen because you know as we all read I mean that was like the album that was going to either make or break right yeah yeah well what I felt more than anything was just relief and happy to have a, a, a gig to have a, a situation to be in you know and as far as the pressure so I, I didn't personally feel that and I didn't see him exhibit so much pressure as more as exhibit focus mm. You know, it's just like he, he became even more focused than ever. You know, he's really clear about what he wants when it, as an idea of a song or what he'd like it to sound and feel like. But at the same time, he's really open to a, a good idea. If someone else has an idea for uh, um, a sound or a part or, a, or an arrangement idea, and it's great, he's all for it, you know? So I don't remember, and, and the, the I think I'm only on the title track, Born to Run, and maybe one other song. But that was actually recorded. The basic tracks for that were recorded during the recordings for a while, the Innocent E Street Shuffle, you know? And then we weren't, it wasn't finished in time, and he was still working on it. I remember he, re, he rewrote the lyrics for that song at least like four times. Like completely rewrote the lyrics and maybe used one. I mean, like different scenarios. Even. He might've used a, a line or two of lyric from the second draft of the third, but I mean, four different completely thing and maybe more than I don't even know about to arrive at what he uh, arrived at. And it was, you know, what we hear as uh, the lyrics of that. There's a tremendous amount of work that went into that particular song, you know? And, and I've heard him in interviews say, yeah, we." We threw the kitchen sink at that song, and we really did. Yeah. Every kind of sound possibility was given a shot, um, all kinds of stuff. But um, it's a cool tune. I think, I think it deserves all the attention that it's gotten over the years, you know? It was a bit of a breakthrough for him compositionally. He doesn't write music in that style anymore. You notice there's a style change from those days writing to, uh, I think you really, flipped over it with a uh, born in the USA. Yeah. You know, his structures are harmonically more simple. Um, his melodies are always strong, but I think even more stronger melodies and stuff. So, but that's, that's what serves him well as a, the, the foundation of what he wants to communicate. You know? 
those, yeah, those early albums were complex. I mean, you guys changed up, you know, time yeah. signatures changing all the time. The, um, he was almost like a, a preacher, you know, over a lot of the music and the lyrics. Uh, mm -hmm. The songs were very lyric heavy and that, that isn't the case as much anymore. <clears throat> yeah, again, I think um, Kitty's Back is, is an example of his old way of, uh, of his old, his earlier way yeah. of composing, you know. But again, that's the thing, that's just, he wanted to do that because it was appealing to him. The rice songs like um, uh, Kitty's Back and, 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 uh, and Born to Run. It was just the way he was feeling and, and um, other music uh, that he was hearing influenced by. Bruce is, you know, he's known for what he's known for, famous for musically, but he's aware of a whole lot more music than you might personally imagine. I mean, he listens to and is aware of a lot of other music than, than most people would, uh, or make most people, but some people would, would think. You know? What, um for you, I think, is it like, what were some of your influences at the time, uh, musically, uh, you know, like who were you listening to and kind of who, who kind of helped go into your, uh, your formation of, uh, you know, your approach to music? Of which time period are we speaking about? Uh, from say 70s, 60s, 70s. Uh, yeah, I guess say 60s, 70s. Okay, that was a, such a prime time there. <laughs> I think like historically, I mean, for us as a species, uh, the art of music uh, really, uh, it exploded around that time because we had this whole combination of musical forms. Now, what's, uh, and they, we even had to make names for it. Okay, there was, uh, what did we call that stuff? Oh, jazz rock, okay, <laughs> right? So let's say jazz comes from earlier in the century. You've, we've had people called jazz music since, you know, 19, whatever, whatever, early 20s, that's jazz, okay? There was nothing called rock and roll back then. Not a note of it, not back then. It was coming, it was around the corner. Then it comes up and all these other people, Fats Waller and then blah, 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 and you have Little Richards. Now, pow, rock and roll. And then now these musicians who, who were harmonically aware of jazz heard some degree of rock and roll and that's appealing too. And then they combine their harmonic knowledge of jazz with the rhythmic feeling of rock. Now we have to, what do we call this? Jazz rock, right? Okay, that's amazing. There's no other period in history where that something like that happened, you know? And so, and I think really the 60s, man, the late 50s and 60s was an explosion of that. And in all these other forms, um, uh, bands like um, Emerson, Lake and Palmer, you know, you know, one of the most amazing things to, to me to this day, and I remember, because you're talking about influence, what, what used to, um, really excite me. I studied classical piano from the time when I was like six until 13 or something like that with a really good teacher. And I was exposed to all that stuff, Bach, Mozart, classical, the whole range of all, all that stuff and modern composers. And then one day I heard this record by, uh, uh, I think it was George Gruntz, a uh, German pianist, and it's called Bach Humbug. Right, and it was and it was Bach. It was Bach, like uh, I think they were like uh, preludes, sonatas, or inventions. But they were short Bach pieces. But instead of just piano, he had a jazz rhythm section, 
He had this Nils Orsted Oscar Pedersen, I can't remember his name, the Swedish bassist, very famous jazz bassist. And I can't remember who was on drums. And they're playing Bach with a backbeat. And I flipped out. I go, this is the coolest thing I ever heard. I mean, I, to this day, it's like, holy smokes, because it was so cool. And then, um, oh, then other stuff came along, like you know, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. You know, Keith Emerson, you know, he was a classically trained musician. And then, oh, we're going to put like some heavy drums on it. We're going to do this and that and, and Hammond organ, all these combinations. And then you, then that morphed into bands like, you know, Mahavishnu Orchestra, Return to Forever. Uh, uh, God, it's just, and then all these guys and everything's going on at the same time. You have, you have people and can we talk about Miles Davis and what a, what a uh, um, harmonically, it was like an explosion of harmony, you know, Miles went from playing in the most complex forms like bebop and that kind of straight ahead jazz and that, that is very um, physically challenging music to play, to play well. And he was one of the people who helped, you know, create it all. Miles, Train, Dizzy, Charlie Parker, all these people, right? So he went from being in that, one of the developers of that to saying, you know what? I'm just gonna explode the harmony open. We're just gonna play free. And you just play what's, and you might have just a bass line or a melody, not like we're going like 18 chords in a song, you better be pow at the chorus. No, it's just, you know, play. Here's a groove, play on it. And the, the, the simplest things. It's like opening it all up. And all that did was it had effect on the, on the listener, us, the listeners and the players. I mean, people who listen and don't play instruments and people like me who listen and love music, but I also play an instrument and I'm always wanting to get better and go deeper into it. Uh, but that whole period was amazing. To this day, if I hear, uh, <laughs> if I hear like Baroque harmony and with a backbeat with a funky beat to it, it's just like, it, it drives me crazy. I really love it, you know. I did a song, I don't mean to go on too much longer about this, but um, there was a song and an album I did years ago called uh, True Stories with um, the band Tone. And there's a song in there called uh, Prelude Number Three. And it's a short little prelude. For, you could just play it on piano without drums or anything. And I, I wanted to do this. So I wrote in the piano and I, I had Ernest Carter come up with a beat for it. And we played it live very successfully. It's really, it's an instrumental, it's really cool. And uh, in 2019, I did, uh, I did a project with uh, Dennis Chambers, Jeff Berlin, and Oz Noy. It was called Moshulu. We did a, like a, we did a brief tour of, of uh, the East, uh, East Coast in America, and we did about five jazz festivals in Europe. And then everything happened, COVID and all that. But as, as we all had to bring a couple of pieces of music to make up a set, I thought this would be a really nice one to play. And like Dennis Chambers is one of my favorite drummers of, of all time. I've been wanting to work with him for, uh, for years. And we met years ago and, and talked about it. So I brought it in to rehearsal and played it and they all dug it, you know? So it was nice to get that, you know, because that I think True Stories was like 1980 something. No, 1978, somewhere in there. But, um, it worked, but I mean, that's an example of that, that combination of elements, that combination of jazz, classical, rock, funk, blues, all this stuff is what we have uh, um, uh, access to. And that that's, remains to me exciting. It really, it really does. Very cool, awesome. How, how uh, David, how wild was it 
growing up and hearing something like Fitch's Brew mm. or uh, the stuff that Herbie Hancock was doing mm-hmm. at that time. Was, it, was that as a piano player, did that just blow your mind or were you a little like, mm. No, everyone's mind blown. Everyone I knew learned Bitches Boo. <laughs> we used to call people up on the phone, hey, have you got it, record? And who didn't have it, like, let's meet at like Bob's house. Bob's got it. And we'd go to Bob's house and listen to Bitches Brew, you know, until you could get your own copy, sort yourself out. No, we hung on every note of my, especially what Miles Davis did, because he was really considered like, you know, like the, at the, the, the top of the whole thing. As far as Herbie Hancock, I've been listening to Herbie Hancock since Herbie Hancock was a side musician on those CTI albums. You know, he was the, the yeah. top guy to be playing, playing on like George Benson's record, uh, West Montgomery. He looks, oh, it's Herbie Hancock on piano. Uh, so from those days, and then he got his own contract and did Maiden Voyage and all that. So he's, he, my, the three pianists that have really influenced me and who I really studied and continue to study and listen to their music and, and try and understand uh, what they do is uh, Keith Jarrett, Herbie Hancock, and Chick Corea. Chick Corea, wow. Those, those three, man. And there's other great pianists as well. I mean, I, if I had to say another one, like Joe Zawinul is another uh, incredible musician, but especially like you're going, going back to those days, those three um, piano players are, are just incredible. And I remember hearing Joe Zawinul on Cannonball Adderley records, because my father was a huge jazz fan. He had everything Cannonball Adderley put out. And um, yeah, he started out there and then left that and did, and it became, you know, Weather Report. And, oh my God, it's iconic. So iconic. Some of the folks you have played with, are, is it fair to say they've been influences on, on you? I mean, can you just kind of give us yeah. a on like what stands out about some of the folks you played with? I know you have Jack Bruce, you got Sting, you got Peter Gabriel, there's so many people. Clapton. It's a funny thing to uh, to to end up working with um, people that you uh, you went out and bought their records and like <laughs> dropped a needle on their record and you, I got first bar, I got the second bar. You know, it's like incremental, like a football game. Learning music like that, you know, when you just have an instrument, there was no paper to read about it. You know, and and a lot of a lot of musicians don't read sight read anyway. But uh, that's how we learned. Um, music back then you had to pick the needle up when you start and you play along as much as you can and then you start again and you build on it like that but i mean i've, I've gotten to play with people like uh, cream was one of my favorite bands right so i got to play with jack bruce which was amazing i couldn't believe it the day the phone rang and it was <laughs> really <laughs> <laughs> and then that became a whole uh, thing and we actually uh jack was great we actually became friends and we, I, we did projects after that band, um, uh, Jack Bruce band with Billy Cobham and, uh, and uh, Clem Clemson and myself. Uh, you know, we did, we did one album, a tour of America, tour of Europe, and then that was all over. And then Jack called me to work uh, with him. He wanted to do a trio and he wanted to play piano and sing and also play bass. And he wanted me to play guitar and play he played synthesizer and played bass with my left hand back in those days. This was like the early 80s now. <laughs> uh, and, and we had Bruce Gary, uh, the drummer for The Knack, which was a drummer. So we worked as a trio in Europe for a while. There's a lot of recording of that stuff, actually. I'm surprised. I got last year, some guy who puts it all out sent me a box set of like that whole tour and period and everything. And there's video and stuff. 
And then I got to play with Eric Clapton, another, you know, phone call that made me like, I actually, I stuttered. I used to stutter when I was a little kid, briefly. And I got, my dad got me out of it. Basically, he just sort of frightened me out of stuttering. <laughs> but um, uh, the phone rang and I, no, I actually, I, I was in the bedroom and I had an answer machine and I just happened to be in the bedroom and I had called their office um, just to say that something happened. I was on a tour with Seal and that fell apart. This was like late, like 99, oh, 2000, just before, just before uh, 2001, 9-11. And um, they had offered me um, in uh, 98, he did a tour with a small orchestra, like a string section, Eric Clapton did. And they had called and offered me that, you know, would you, would you like to do that? And unfortunately, I'd already made a commitment to do Seals tour. He'd done the album Human Beings. And uh, so that was going on. A long story, short as I can, uh, Seals tour fell apart, sadly. And I was without work, many months of without work. So I got on the phone, I'm calling around, calling different people. You know, you call musicians, producers, you know, and you say, I'm no you're up to, but you know, if you need a uh, decent piano player slash guitarist, I'm available, give me a shout. And I called his, I uh, called Eric Clapton's uh, office and I, I said as much, I said, I don't know what your guys schedule is or when you're going out again, but you know, I just uh, was off a tour. So I'm just, you know, saying hi and leave my number. A couple days later, again, I happen to be in my bedroom and I'm, I don't pick up the phone when it like just rings, you know, I got to see who's on the other end, you know? Yeah, yeah. And before the pre cell phone days, that was the answer machine, you know? So I'm in the bedroom, I hear the answer machine come on and it's Eric Clapton's voice. Wow. He goes, oh, hello, is this, is this Dave Sanchez? He calls me Dave all the time. Is this is the right number for Dave Sanchez? And I like picked it up and I, it took me a second to say, hi, it was like that. <laughs> <laughs> and we spoke, you know, we had met before. I met him when I, I was playing with Zuccaro. And uh, so we'd had conversations, but I was like, and he said, you know, the person that they wanted to do, I had asked to do it, did not want to um, leave Los Angeles. He had a job working on a television series or something. Hmm. And they said, yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't want to come out for that long. And it was, a, it was like the old days. That was a for real year long tour. We started in January of, uh, of 2001 and it ended in December 2001. We had a couple breaks to come home and everything, but uh, that was a great project. Yeah, so again, to get to work with two people from one of my favorite bands, I got to work with uh, Jeff Beck, you know, briefly some years ago on a, a, a tour, um, tour he did. Uh, his regular keyboard player, Jason, uh, let me get his last name right, excuse me. Jason Moran, I think it is, excuse me for getting it right. Uh, couldn't do it because he was working with Manu Cache. So I got a call from the booking agent, Jeff's booking agent saying, hey, where are you? What are you doing? And uh, yeah, after hanging up the phone and jumping up and down on the bed for about 10 minutes, he said, yeah, I'm definitely available. And, uh, and that was great fun. But again, Jeff is another guitarist that really influenced me a lot. Uh, and again, on that whole thing of three players of influence, my, uh, maybe I'm gonna have to have, add a fourth. Jimi Hendrix, Eric Clapton, Jeff Beck, mm. you know? Yeah. I mean, just those three players are just outrageous, man, just incredible. And there's so much uh, 
so much to learn. And, you know, and B.B. King is the reason, I won't list them as those three, slightly different because the real reason I wanted to learn how to play guitar was because of hearing B.B. King. My dad was a big B.B. King fan as well. And uh, he had this, and B.B. King used to be on television sometimes back then. And uh, he had this sound, his B.B. King's uh, vibrato on his guitar is, is like unique, you know, and it's, it's the way he hits, he hits the note E or any note on the G string. And he has this really like wide vibrato and it sounds like a hummingbird or something. And I said, dad, what is that? You know, what, how's he doing that? And he's he watched a piece of film on it. And I just thought guitar was such a cool instrument anyway, you know, it has amazing sounds. It's very portable, unlike a piano, yeah. you know? And, um, yeah, but those those three, those four, I have to say, BB <laughs> King, since he was say since he was original, but BB King, Jimi Hendrix, Eric Clapton, Jeff Beck, awesome, just cool. Very cool. You got to play with uh, with uh, Bruce uh, on Human Touch and Western mm. Stars. What was it like coming back to? Does he? What does he do? He just calls you and says, "Hey, Dave." Yeah, that's it. <laughs> phone call. It's a phone call, and he says, "Yeah, we're doing something." Um, Human Touch and Lucky Town, those were, um, I think I'm on two songs on that one. I was in Los Angeles on another session and he tracked me down somehow in my hotel and he said, hey, I heard you're in town. We're doing uh, Human Touch and um, he, had, he had some other guest studio musicians on that record. I think Randy Jackson was on bass. Uh, it's so funny, people know Randy Jackson. Maybe I shouldn't say this, but Maybe most people familiar with him don't realize that he's a fantastic musician. Yeah, awesome. he's a producer, incredible bass player, yeah. incredible bass player. I got to do a lot of sessions with him uh, in the '80s that um, Narda Michael Walden was producing for a lot of female singers and stuff. But um, but yeah, he said, uh, "How long are you in town?" And I was there for about like I don't know six or seven days. He said, "Well, when you get a break, you know, come on over to." I think they did that at A&M Studios. And uh, I did, jumped in my rental car and drove over there and he, we hung out, showed me the songs and you know, did a couple takes. It was great. And the, um, what was that, uh, Western Stars. Uh, I used to live in Woodstock, New York. I live in Hawaii now, right? Since about a year now, year, year, almost a year and a half. And uh, that was just a phone call again. He said, um, we're doing this thing and it's not an E Street project um, and we're recording it uh, at his studio at home. And he said, can you come down for a while and see, yeah. And we actually used to live, when I lived in Woodstock, we were about, I was actually about maybe an hour and 20 minutes from his house, you know, by as a drive, you know. So um, yeah, I drove down there and I stayed for, I think I stayed for like two days, two, three days. And the same thing, it's very relaxed schedule, you know. Bruce's thing now, at least the way it was with me, and I think I hear with the whole band when they get together, we used to go for these crazy long hours of work. You know, we'd start early and end late, you know, and just really put everything into it. And he's realized at some point that, I think it's when you get to a, in a certain age, but a certain level in your life where you have responsibilities, you're not a teenager anymore, and you got more, you might have one or 2.5 kids, and you know, they need your attention and time and energy as well. So it changed from like, instead of trying to go all day, it was like three solid hours of focused work, you know? And you could come in sometime in the afternoon time or like maybe, I'd have lunch and then we'd like listen and do something. But you would stop, you know, from one, two, three, four. 
you get about three solid hours in and then it's, it's close to dinner time. And you would just go, all right, that's good enough for now. And we'd go have dinner together. We'd listen for a while and, and we'd just like a couple of days of that. And next day you come in and you listen to what you did before. But it was a very, um, a very relaxed and productive, you know, kind of, kind of schedule. You don't feel beat up at the end of the day and you really, you really get stuff done. And it's, it's good for everybody. You, there's also time for your energy to go elsewhere in your life <laughs> where it might be needed, you know? That is cool. What was it like kind of reconnecting? I mean, like, was it, I mean, the friendship, I guess, has probably always been there, obviously. Oh, man, there's, it's not a reconnect. It's always connected. It's just, are we physically in the same room? Right. <laughs> that's really it. That's, that's not a relationship that needs to be reunited or anything. It's always like instantly, you know? Um, so it's great. Totally easy. And he's, he's the same way um, to work with, you know, as he was, you know, he's focused. He has, uh, he has a vision of what it wants to sound like, but he's always listening and tweaking it. And if you did something or the drummer or the bass player did something that really is right, he'll let you know that and, and you carry on. Awesome. He's great yeah, to work with. I mean, it's easy. Yeah. We were talking about Herbie Hancock a little bit. Um, <laughs> what, uh, did you ever get to, to jam with Herbie? Did you ever get to, to see the Headhunters or? I have not had the pleasure of playing with um, with Herbie Hancock, not yet. Neither of us are dead yet. <laughs> He's in pretty good health. He looks fine, but no. But I'm certainly um, no. I'm, I mean, Vinny would talk. Vinny Kaliuta worked with her. Works and has worked with Herbie Hancock quite a lot. And Vinny and I, for all the years of working with Stang and stuff, we we spend a lot of time together on planes and stuff and having dinner. You just you know you, you talk about your life and everything. And uh, he just has the greatest stories to tell about him and how, um, you know, how he, how, he, how he is in rehearsal. He told me one thing, there was a project that he did, Herbie did, and I don't forget the thing, but he said, everybody got the music in advance. And it's, it's like, you know, you have to be able to sight read to play this stuff. And you get the music in enough time, but Herbie goes, um, on gig time, no music on stage. So not only do you have to learn it and like, you know, you got to memorize this shit and be, be brilliant, you know, uh, but that's the gig, you know, that's the gig for people on that level, you know, but um, no, maybe one day I will. But again, he remains, um, his output continues. I mean, everything he's doing, you know, and it just remains uh, on that very high level of, of, uh, of mastery, you know, like Chick Corea, you know, Vinny had a, Vinny has a, um, he has a blog, I think it's called Breakfast with Vin. And after Chick passed away, he made, amongst many other brilliant remarks, he's, he's a deep soul, Vinny uh, is, as well as an amazing musician. He made the remark that goes, with Chick's passing, it's like, it's kind of like the ending, not the ending of an era, but the ending of a, a level of excellence where you have an example of someone, someone who's that good is the way he put it, you know, he's good and he's good and you can do it, but someone who is that good, that stunning degree of, of mastery and not just physically mastering the instrument, but the musicality of it, you know, that combination of being able to express yourself fluidly on, on the instrument. And at the same time, the most musical energy is coming through you like that. That's a, again, you know, look at, watch a, watch a film of Keith Jarrett play, play piano. 
he is totally possessed. It's like the identity is gone. He goes away and his body express everything he does. And he just goes away and he becomes an instrument for the energy, but the level of his excellence, it's up there. It's just super high, you know? And you can see um, the sincerity of it all. Same thing, you know? I've been watching a lot of film of, of Chick because there's a lot on the internet now, uh, on, um, on, on YouTube, you know? There's some amazing performances up there. And uh, it's just incredible. I mean, I'll, I'll never get over how good, how good he was and how much music he left behind. His legacy is incredible. His Chick's legacy is if like, if Mozart didn't die young and got a recording contract. You know, and had a recording contract for like, you know, 20 plus more years. The output that he has, if you go back to the, the first recorded example of Chick Corea to the last, you know, it's just insane. We're, we're really blessed. We're really blessed to have some quality. It's brilliant stuff. It's such an innovator. I mean, like yourself, like finding new ways to approach the instrument. At least that's the feel that you get. Mm -hmm. Just It's awesome. It's got to be a challenge to do that, to try to, you know, better yourself as you go, right? It's not so much that it's a challenge. It's that's, that's the love of it. Right. You're doing it because you're, you're, there's nothing else more that you want to do. You love that. You love the sound of, of, of the way they, they play and what it sounds like. And you want to be able to do that, too. And that takes a bit of, a bit of, uh, um, of study and work. But you're doing it because you love it. And when you get it. When you get to that level of being able to express yourself like that, there's, there's, it's, it's more precious than gold, you know? You know, yeah. nobody can take that from you. No, no one can interfere with that. And that, that new level of getting it, that's just the new foundation of what you're gonna go deeper into, you know? But there's definitely levels of that. You'll feel that, you'll know that when you've attained what you were trying, when you've attained what you were attracted to. You know, whether it's a style of playing or where I want to play blues guitar a certain way. Well, you know what it is, you hear it and go for it, you know. And Chick Corea had this, uh, this really insightful masterclass and it was about improvisation. And they were asking him, you know, how do I get to sound like, you know, the way I want to sound? He said, find a recording example of something that you really love. Find a, whoever the player is, whatever, it's piano, guitar, whatever find that recording, find that bit of it and copy it exactly. Learn to copy exactly, go through any physical difficulties or, or harmonic difficulties you have to understanding the notes, to physically being able to play the notes, just find that and copy it exactly. And then the moment when you can play along with that thing that you love perfectly, pow, you're in. Whatever that is, and then you build on that. That's just a building block, you know. And it works. It works for everything. It's actually the way that Indian classical music is taught. It's not taught in a sort of strictly notated way. It can be notated, but you sit with um, with the, the master, with the, the teacher, and you sit side by side, and he's playing you a simple riff, and he plays you the riff. You play the riff. Da, da, da. And then you don't, and the next riff is more complex and everything then like that. And you don't go further until you can exactly play along with your teacher. Yeah. Do you have a, a favorite Chick, Chick album as like Return to Forever or do you? Oh God. 
I hate putting you on the spot, but I oh man, well let's just give it up right there. I'm gonna say if I had to narrow me down to one favorite chick record, uh, yeah, him and the Seventh Galaxy. Him and the Seventh Man, that that just blew the roof off of everything. Uh, yeah, that was a real change. That was something like something landed from the Seventh Galaxy, and like <laughs> the doors open. And here's some badass musicians playing some music that you never quite heard like this before. Oh, yeah. Outrageous. Yeah, that title track. It's just, it's just badass. Again, an example of this union of forms. This is, you know, harmonically, that's not really jazz. It's jazzy in parts, but it's not jazz. That's classical music with a serious like jazz drumming behind it, you know? Some serious modern, let's say fusion jazz, fusion, not, not traditional jazz drumming, not like, you know, uh, straight ahead or anything, but it's, it's modern jazz drumming, but the harmonics, I mean, it's like um, Stravinsky could have written Hammer of the Seventh Galaxy. He was going, it's all over the place harmonically. You know, it's not a four chord rock and roll song. It's not a kind of, you know, traditional jazz standard thing. It's just this combination of this really deep harmony and this exciting drumming. Man. And there you go. That's another thing. Never heard that before. Yeah. You know, and then like, say, for instance, actually, technically, if you took all the harmony of him and the seventh galaxy and it muted the drum track and you didn't hear any percussion, any modern percussion sounds, you just heard I don't know, like violins or piano or something. Any composer like um, uh, in the Romantic period, uh, Stravinsky could have written it, Wagner could have written that. Uh, you know, Mahler, you know? That's all their shit, man, with, uh, with some wicked ass drum. But, you know, it, it took the mind and the spirit and the heart of, of a, a person like Chick Corea to like put it together. But again, it comes from exposure. You know, Chick was a child prodigy and he studied classical piano from a very early age. He was a, a really deep child prodigy on the piano. And he got into classical music and then someone turned him on to, to Latin music. And in the course of all that, how did you, how did you sit down? I'm gonna write a song and it's gonna go like this. Didn't it? <laughs> well, because he loved it all. He loved the modern drumming in its own context and hearing that and being around that, okay. Wow, I love that. And then he loves the harmonic thing. And he just naturally put it together. It's not like, it's not like a, a, a math problem. It's just a, a, like desire, you know? I wanna play these chords with that rhythm. That's really all it is. Yeah, I wanna play this riff with that groove. Like Mahavishnu Orchestra, incredible you know, composing. And then John McLaughlin, another great composer. I mean, aware of classical music, aware of jazz played with Miles Davis. Again, and then this airplane with Tony Williams, you know, one of the founders of what we call modern drumming, modern jazz drumming. And then he, oh, I'm gonna do this thing in Mahavishnu Orchestra. I'm gonna take Indian classical music lines, play it on an electric guitar, get a guy to play violin along with me in unison, which is not easy. And then I'm gonna get this drummer, this badass drummer to put these grooves underneath all of it, outrageous. Yeah. But again, it's something that could not have been arrived at in any other period in history except our period now. It's a blessed, blessed time that we're in, man. It is, man. It's wild. It's so wild. Cool. Um, 
I know, I know you said you're a little uh, tight on time there. What, um, I guess last question, at least that I had, um, like what's next for you? I mean, I know you're, are you kind of itching to get out and gig? I mean, the album's out, it's slamming, but you know, it's, is it hard to not, not play? I mean, it's gotta be crazy. Really hard. And it's been, I think, I'm pat myself on the back with how well I've adjusted and not freaked out. Cause I, I miss it terribly. Um, the last time I was on a stage with other musicians was in Berlin in 2019 on that project with um, Dennis Chambers. Okay. Uh, and and I, I miss it terribly. So yeah, what's next for me is I'm actually beginning the early, early stages of working on the next record. Okay. On my next record. Sweet. And um, I also have a project with Will Calhoun that got interrupted. We have a, a duo called Open Secret. And we did a short tour of the East Coast in, uh, that must have been 2019 as well. And um, we have an actual album. We have a live album from that. And we had intended to put it out last year and then COVID happened and everything got disrupted and blah, 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 blah. But uh, that will come out hopefully in this calendar year. And Will and I, as soon as we can, uh, as soon as they let you play in places where, come on in everybody and sit down. I don't know how well we're gonna do when it's 33% capacity. I don't know what kind of tour you can put together on that. Yeah. Maybe people are trying, but uh, as soon as we can um, play together again, we're gonna continue with that Open Secret project, uh, myself and Will Calhoun, which is really amazing. It's, he's amazing to play with and we go back a long ways. And uh, the record is incredible, it's all live. And uh, yeah, it's deep. So that's those two things ahead, I think. And uh, just trying to uh, reconstruct my work life. Um, I mean, like a lot of people, I lost a whole year's worth of income last year. I was set to do a tour uh, in Italy with, uh, with some other musicians. And, uh, you know, so it's like everybody. I mean, there's people in a lot worse shape um, than I am. And not that I'm, I'm not in bad shape, but I mean, there's people who were so badly affected by this that they, their businesses will not be returning, you know? So, you know, like everybody just managing this time, uh, I got my um, shot. My wife and I got our uh, vaccine shots. Um, was it last month now, Did it April 9th? And um, so, uh, you know, I need to comply with any restrictions. I can't be one of these people who says, I don't believe in a, I don't believe in a vaccine for a virus. I can't be one of those folks. I, I got to travel, man. If I get a phone call saying, hey, can you come to London? Yeah, I'm coming. And I get to the airport and say, you got your vaccine card? It's going to be a hard yes. It is laminated. And here it is. So, now step aside. <laughs> you know, I can't play that game, man. I have to work. So That's right. Well, yeah, I don't get that either, David. So Yeah. But um, the, the real cool thing, and this is the last question for me is uh, you, you said in multiple interviews that uh, I've read that this is the best work that you've ever done. Mm, uh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And just I, to just talk, just come in full circle, just talk a little bit about that. I think again, it's, I'm gonna say it's the best because, because of the scope of it all. And also because of the, the quality uh, I mean, I'm, I'm very proud of everything I've done, really. I, and I look at myself as a composer. I think of myself also like a person who writes like novels. I never intend to write the same 
the same book over and over again. You know, actually, if I did, I might be more financially better off and I might have had more success commercially in the world. But that's never that's not my not my artistic um, voice. You know, I'm, I'm moved to do certain things or certain things come through me and it comes out and then great. And I sort of move on because it, the, the stimulus is constant, you know, and the stimulus can change from one year or a couple of years to another. It's a growing thing. So I, 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 I like all those records, every single one of them. And, and I, I'm, I'm um, proud to be able to have done it all. But this one, because of the period of time that it covers, uh, the songs and the, uh, what is it? I told you already about uh, Urban Psalm. The last one on the record, uh, War in Heaven, myself and Vinnie Colaiuta, the two people on the track, the basic track for that was recorded in 1991. Wow. on a break on a Soul Cages tour. Hmm. Vinny used to live in Connecticut, which was not very far from Woodstock, where I lived in Woodstock then. And we had a break. And uh, again, I had the studio set up. I would just got it done. He said, uh, you, know, you know, he was on his way to somewhere. I think he was going to Philadelphia to visit his mom. He goes, why don't I step at your place for a couple of days? We'll just hang out and record. And that's what we did. And, uh, but then that lived in the, in the can for a long time in a certain form. And then again, 2016, it's like, I gotta finish this thing. I looked at that and I did a few other, it's basically the same track, but I did a few other uh, overdubs, like a kind of um, vocal pad, but very subtle. Other than that, that's pretty much the tune. But I feel like when you're taking care of that much music going back from 1991 to 2019, which is when we wrapped the thing up and the newer songs are like in the middle of the night. There's brand new. That's from that's from February of 2019. Uh, um, Eyes wide open is also from like 2019. Um, I just feel that like I was very responsible and not letting any of it get away. You know, none of it is still sitting on the shelf. All of it is in a, in a range form that I feel very, very good about. And I, it's exactly how I feel and the way I want to say it. Uh, and uh, that combination, and, and again, I, I, I realize that it looks like I do something, but really, you know, it's something doing me. You know, music is, a, is a, its own energy that I, I wouldn't even attempt to explain it. I mean, we have to talk about it because, it's an energy in our lives, but the idea that I can explain, uh, I don't know, it's like explaining empty space. What is that? Well, it's what you live in. It's what, there's more empty space going through my hand than my hand, as far as physics go, modern physics will tell you that. So it's like asking a fish, well, what's water? <laughs> it's, it's what I live in, it's where, how I move around. It's, it's what I, you know, it's how I, it's how I live. It's what I, that's what I am. But I think music is, is like that. It's just an energy that comes through people. And it comes through people and it gets shaped by your mind, your heart, and your physical ability. And that's how it comes out. But it's, it's the strangest thing in the world. It's like you're, I don't know, it's like you're playing in a sandbox with God or something. It's just crazy the way ideas come and how quickly they come, how naturally they come. 
and how that idea leads to a next idea and that feeling leads to another feeling. And at the end of all this energy play, you have what we call a, a song or a piece of music. You know? But uh, I, I really do, man. And I think I did things. I went beyond myself, uh, even compositionally say, um, December, you know? I can't look on any previous record and find a song that sounds anything like that that I've done, you know, that's not like a rehashing of anything. And that's a, that's a really same thing with the treehouse and, and, uh, and all of it. So I, I feel really honored to be a sort of uh, the carrier, the custodian of that energy coming into this world to, for people to experience. But uh, I do, it's my best until I do better. And there's quite a lot of music um, already in the can with some amazing drumming from, uh, this is more from Finney, um, Adriano Molinari, the uh, drummer from Italy who plays on uh, uh, the title track, plays on Eyes Wide Open and on Flip It, some serious funky drumming. Yeah, uh, yeah. and so I'm, I'm looking forward to diving back into it. I've just got to wrap up a few things not related to that project and then I can sort of really get lost, get lost in it. Because that's when it, that's when it, the magic, that's when it really, uh, um, is the most fun when your phone is off and no one else in your life needs you right now and you can just be in the studio you can have your hands on the instrument or the console or whatever you're doing and just really nothing exists but that and it's just it's the best time in the world awesome. so very cool yeah and it's amazing stuff and like i said very poignant for the times eyes wide open um David Sanctuous, thank you, man. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. I appreciate the attention to the music. I really do. Thank you so much. Yeah!